Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you for today's briefing. And in this episode, we get the latest from the trial of Chris Dawson. Now, this is the case that was at the centre of the Teacher's Pet podcast. There's evidence that Lynn Dawson made a phone call to her husband who was working at the Northbridge Baths as a lifeguard on that particular Saturday. And she basically said, according to evidence, look, you had your time out. I think I need a little bit of time out for myself. They sort of mutually agreed on that. And that was the last anyone had ever seen Lynn Dawson. Chris Dawson was a rugby player and a teacher. Lynette Dawson was a nurse and a devoted mother. He's pleaded not guilty to her murder. And this story has gripped the nation and it's now playing out in court. So midway through the trial, we find out what fresh evidence has been uncovered in the decades-long mystery. First, today's headlines with Tash Belling. It is Monday, June 20. Good morning, Tom. Thank you. A huge decision on transgender athletes in swimming. FINA, world's swimming governing body, has voted to restrict transgender athletes in elite women's competitions. Male to female transgender athletes whose legal gender or gender identity is female may only compete in FINA competition in the female category if they can establish that they have not experienced any part of male puberty. FINA CEO Brent Nowicki. So the decision was made during FINA's Extraordinary General Congress, which is happening on the sidelines of the World Championships in Budapest. And around 71% of their members of the 152 national federations voted for this policy. It means male to female transgender competitors have to have completed their transition by the age of 12 in order to be able to compete in women's competitions. Yeah, the other important part of this decision is to create a new category for transgender athletes to compete in. It'll be called an open category. Um, So this is a big one, Tash. It means that Leah Thomas, um, that well-known American transgender swimmer, won't be able to compete at the Olympics or the World Championships. And Tom, obviously, I'm thinking straight away, will this set a precedent then for other sporting competitions and other athletes? Yeah, I think it probably will. And the vote, of course, followed a report from a transgender task force comprising leading medical, legal and sports figures. And a big payout for hundreds of thousands of Toyota drivers. In Australia's largest ever class action, the federal court ruled in April that Toyota Hilux, Prado and Fortuner diesel vehicles sold from the 1st of October 2015 to the 23rd of April 2020 had a defect. Yeah, so the defect caused excessive smell and white smoke and also increased fuel consumption. And the court found the defects also led to a 17.5% price drop in the value of the cars when they were resold, which means the owners of 260,000 of these defective vehicles will be compensated. The best guide is around 17.5% of the average retail price of that vehicle new. That's extraordinary. And mm. I can't believe also about the fuel consumption issue. So does that mean not only the value of your car has dropped, but also the fact that you were using a lot more fuel and that was then costing you a lot more at the petrol pump? Yeah, interesting point. Um, that was Matt McKenzie from Gilbert and Tobin Lawyers we heard before. But yeah, Toyotas are such a popular car. So a ruling like this just affects so many people. Um, quarter of a million, it's just huge. And Toyota has appealed that judgment. 
And the former coalition government's new job seeker policy will go ahead in 11 days. It has a points-based system which will require job seekers to earn 100 points through searching for jobs, studying, training and work for the dole. It's actually too late to not have a points system at all. It's about getting inside it and making it logical and making sure that when all these contracts take effect in a couple of weeks' time, we've actually got a system that helps long-term unemployed people That's Employment Minister Tony Burke on Sky there. The new system will replace the Job Active program that required people to lodge 20 applications a month. Mr Burke has said he supports the flexibility of the new system but is concerned about parts of it that are meant to be automated, bringing back memories, of course, of the robo-debt disaster. And pressure's growing on the Australian government to do more now that Julian Assange is facing extradition to the US. On Saturday, the British Home Secretary approved the extradition order and if carried out, it'll mean Assange will face a US court. He is, of course, charged with breaching the US Espionage Act, facing up to 175 years in jail if convicted. There's still a long way to go in terms of our appeals here in the United Kingdom, potentially all the way to the Supreme Court. So that's Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, speaking on 10 there. So this case has been going since 2010, when WikiLeaks first published those documents about the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, as well as diplomatic cables. And now that he's getting one step closer to extradition, people are basically calling on the Labor government to put their money where their mouth is. Um, They've been seemingly tasked more supportive of Assange's Mm. plight than previous governments, saying that this has dragged on long enough. Anthony Albanese also says that loud hail of diplomacy is not the way to go here. So you would expect that behind the scenes, they will be talking to Joe Biden. And I saw Jennifer Robinson, who is, of course, uh, Assange's lawyer, we heard from earlier there. She said over the weekend, which I thought was an excellent point, you know, this is a huge precedent for journalism and journalists in general. You know, does that mean, therefore, if you publish controversial documents that may expose government mistakes or alleged cover-ups, does that then mean journalists can go to jail? Speaking of which, there were a few at the Logies last night. What, journalists Um, or criminals? (laughs) (laughs) Good question, Tasha. I'll leave that call to you. Uh, (laughs) The Logies were back after three years of not happening, thanks to the pandemic. So, uh, Apart from all the glitz and glamour, some of the results. Hamish Blake took out the gold Logie for most popular personality on Australian TV, as well as the inaugural Burt Newton Award for most popular presenter. And we really couldn't do it without the people that are watching at home. And if you're watching this, you're an insomniac. But <laughs> if you're also somebody that supports Australian TV, and we would not be here um, without you. So thank you. Hamish Blake there. Good on him for getting gold. Guy Pearce won Most Popular Actor for Jack Irish and Kitty Flanagan won Most Popular Actress for Fisk. How good was Kitty and Fisk? Did you see it, Tom? Um, no, I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, really fantastic. Tony Armstrong won the Graham Kennedy Award for Most Popular New Talent for ABC News Breakfast. You might remember him celebrating on air, of course, following the Socceroos win over Peru. He was a bit excited, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He's had an amazing time on television. I mean, he's sort of really only come to prominence in the last year, but people love him. He's such a fun guy. And I guess, you know, in that ABC News Breakfast format, which is, you know, a pretty relatively serious kind of show for breakfast TV, um, he really lights it up. He's Indigenous as well, so he brings a really interesting background to the show. I've met him. He's an awesome dude, so good on him. And, um, yeah, it was good to see everyone frocking up and doing what they used to do. And, of course, the Gold Coast was 
absolutely the right place for such a wonderfully trashy event. <laughs> do you know what I do think, though, on a serious note? You know, people mm. think it's all this glitz and glamour. What I love about it is the fact that it recognises all the people behind the scenes that work incredibly hard to put together often these great shows and also great recognition of some fantastic Australian dramas. The Newsreader was amazing. Did you see that on the Mm. ABC? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, so great recognition for, you know, an industry that does employ tens of thousands of people. All right, thanks so much, Tash. Uh, We're jumping out of here. Annika and Katrina are bringing you the latest on the Chris Dawson trial. Annika, I'm actually not that much of a true crime junkie, but when the Teacher's Pet podcast came out, it was honestly one of those ones that got me completely hooked. I reckon it was one of the first true crime podcasts that got on my radar. I know I'm not alone. Millions of people around the world have become obsessed with this story. It's from the outside looking in a seemingly perfect marriage. It involves Lynette and Chris Dawson. He was a star footballer and she was a devoted mum. They shared a beautiful home in Sydney's Northern Beaches, but all of that unravelled when Lynette went missing in January 1982. Yes, I listened pretty religiously too. I can remember getting to work, uh, walking to work, listening and stopping and not starting work until I could finish an episode. It was, uh, you know, a a really (laughs) gripping series. And obviously uh, it created huge interest and her disappearance has remained a cold case. It's been 40 years now. Chris Dawson, Lynette's husband, went on to marry their teenage babysitter and one of his former students. And for many years, there's been no movement on this case and what happened to Lynette. There were always whispers and speculations about what might have happened. There were sightings, alleged sightings, and questions raised about the relationship between Chris and Lynette, just how happy they were. But nothing was done until a group of journalists dug into the story, made it a podcast, and now, with fresh evidence, Chris Dawson is on trial for murder. Yeah, so it's been quite a few weeks of this trial, and we wanted to know what exactly has been brought to light since this trial has begun, and where is the court case at now? Joining us on today's briefing is Matthew Condon, who is one of the journalists behind the Teacher's Pet podcast. He's been in court every day. It's been 40 years since Lynette Dawson went missing, and for those that haven't followed the case, or the wildly popular podcast... Can you explain how this latest court case, so long after she went missing, actually came about? As you said, 40 years, literally this year since Lynn Dawson disappeared, there were sporadic investigations into this. I mean, for many years, she was treated as a missing person. An investigation heated up again in late 1989, 1990. And then, of course, along came the incredibly popular podcast, The Teacher's Pet by... Hedley Thomas, the award-winning journalist. So that, of course, revived interest again in the case. I think it had over 60 million downloads, that podcast, around the world. Witnesses came forward, certainly to Hedley for his podcast. Again, police reignited their investigation and subsequently Christopher Dawson, Lynn Dawson's husband, was finally charged uh, with her murder. So after all these years, we arrive at Court 9D in the Supreme Court in Sydney 
And why do you think it's taken so long to get answers for the family? Was it a case of, you know, police negligence at the time? Was it just a different time when I guess these cases were treated differently? What do you put it down to the fact that she wasn't found? So Lynn disappears in at the end of January 1982. And then Chris Dawson alleges that his wife contacted him on a few occasions by telephone after the date of the end of the first week of January. People came forward, friends of the Dawsons and indeed um, a relative. This has been examined in the case with sightings of Lynn Dawson. So there were, there were sightings, you know, a few years after she went missing, uh, working as a nurse, for example, at a hospital in Curl Curl in Sydney. A relative gave evidence that he indeed sighted Lynn in Gladesville on busy Victoria Road, believing that she was working as a nurse at a nearby hospital. So you, you have all of this doubt about is she alive, is she not, uh, in the narrative as it's moved forward. We've got this court case happening right now. What is it that the court is being asked to decide and what could that mean for Chris Dawson? Well, he's facing the most serious charge of all, and that is that he murdered his wife, Lynn Dawson. And that alleged crime occurred around the end of the first week of January in 1982. His defence team successfully argued for uh, what's called a, a judge alone trial. That means no jury. I mean, the basis was that with the popularity of the Teacher's Pet and the Teacher's Pet podcast has come up day in, day out in this trial uh, from the defence in terms of the allegation that the podcast had a a serious influence given its popularity and um, certain thematics that it took that it may have indeed influenced um, witnesses in the trial. The judge alone decision was because they argued Chris Dawson could not possibly get a fair trial before a jury given the popularity of this story. I mean, the publicity, you know, fair enough. How could he get a fair trial with a jury of his peers? So uh, it's judge alone before Justice Ian Harrison. And how much of the evidence being presented is historic, such as those police interviews or intercepts from the time, versus witnesses coming forward in the years since Lynn disappeared? Is it a 50-50 split? Is there a huge amount of new evidence? What's the court sort of hearing? The court is hearing piece by piece, brick by brick, the building of the narrative behind the disappearance of Lynn Dawson such is the nature of serious trials. For example, though, since the trial began six weeks ago, people are still coming forward and contacting crime stoppers and are offering new information. Whether that will be admitted and become part of the trial is unknown at the moment. But it's been very carefully um, systematic. So the case began, for example, with evidence from Uh, the neighbours of the Dawsons up at Bayview Heights on Sydney's northern beaches. Uh, It then went to the workmates of Lynn, who worked at the Warrywood Childcare Centre up there as a nurse. There was evidence, of course, uh, over several days from JC, who was the young babysitter at the epicentre of this story and this trial. And then it moved to, of course, family members were giving evidence. It was heartbreaking in many instances. And now we've moved on to the police and their investigation. So it's been, you know, very carefully plotted. 
In any case, a narrative takes time to sort of come into focus. It is a building of a picture. Has the court heard from Chris's second wife? And what do we know about their relationship, uh, both before Lynn went missing and, of course, after? Chris's second wife was the babysitter, JC. We can't name her because she was um, underage at the time of this situation. So she's known as JC. To cut a very long story short, um, JC was a student at Cromer High where Chris Dawson was a PE teacher in late 1981. JC, she briefly moved into the house at 2 Gilwinga Drive, Bayview, into Chris and Lynn's house. Uh, the explanation was that she had a troubled home life. She was trying to complete her HSC, which obviously required stability. And JC, who had been their babysitter for some time, briefly moved into the home. Now, if you spool forward to around Christmas 1981, the evidence in court has been that Chris Dawson and JC hopped in a car, threw some clothes in the car and headed north ostensibly to Queensland to start a new life together. As they travelled north, uh, JC felt physically unwell and was missing her family and said, can we turn around, essentially? And back they went to Sydney. Christmas Day has been an epicentre of this case. It's an important day, 1981, in that, you know, the Dawsons, a very close family, have always celebrated Christmas and held it to be very important, like a lot of families do. But on this Christmas Day, where there was a gathering at Chris Dawson's parents' house in Sydney, Chris Dawson wasn't present. He was at his twin brother Paul's house, which is only a couple of doors down from his home in Bayview, and um, Lynn Dawson went to the function on her own. So there was evidence about discussions about Chris and Lynn's understanding was that, you know, he needed some time out to himself at that point. Go forward now to January and Lynn and Chris Dawson come back together. They agree to see a marriage counsellor. Everything looks great. Lynn's happy. Chris Dawson says he was happy that there was great hopes that they could make this work. And then come that first weekend in January, there's evidence that Lynn Dawson made a phone call to her husband who was working at the Northbridge Baths as a lifeguard on that particular Saturday. And she basically said, according to evidence, look, you had your time out. I think I need a little bit of time out for myself. They sort of mutually agreed on that. And that was the last anyone had ever seen Lynn Dawson. What has it been like covering this case? And why do you think that certain cases like this capture the national attention? Why they catch the attention? And it occurred to me sitting in the court, you know, watching witnesses come and go, listening to arguments from the Crown and the defence. It occurred to me that in essence, this is a very simple story. It's about a husband and a wife. It's about the fraying of a marriage. And it's about that scenario resulting in where we are today. I think it touches on a lot of common things that we all share in terms of a relationship, in terms of having young children, in, in terms of trying to make something work. This is a story from the 70s and the early 80s, but it's all about raising kids and how difficult that is and keeping a roof over your head and being able to afford the mortgage. And it's just that classic suburban drama that touches us all, really. You know, it has its incredibly poignant moments too when you look at the family and they're hearing evidence day in, day out about their missing sibling. 
Now, there's been no evidence that Lynn is still around. There hasn't been a body that's been found. There's been a few sightings. All of this leaves a really uncertain situation for the family. So importantly, do you think we're ever going to get any answers and from this trial about what happened to Lynn? Well, the assumption of finding a body is the assumption (laughs) that she is indeed dead. So the defence contends that uh, she disappeared and indeed that it was of her own volition that she made a break from the family at that point. And the case is being trying to examine all sides of this story and whether indeed that's a valid conclusion to reach and, the, and probing Lynn's character and her state of mind leading up to her disappearance per se. So, you know, this is a trial. We have to obviously balance everything, taking every view from the Crown, from the defence, and the ultimate answer to this question rests with His Honour, Justice Ian Harrison. And that was journalist Matthew Condon, who's been covering this case every day. Annika, interesting that Chris Dawson, I mean, so many years have passed. He's, he's in his 70s now. For so many families who their loved ones have um, gone missing and they've never been able to get answers. I guess it's people power that have brought cases like this particular one and other cases to light and led to either fresh evidence with people coming forward or inquests or even court cases, as is the case with this one. Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? You get the the prominence in the media and often, you know, in this case, you actually get a trial. But of course, it can be used against you. We know Chris Dawson has tried to use the podcast as a reason why he says he's not getting a fair trial. So uh, it's a fine line, but obviously a great way of trying to deliver outcomes and answers for families. Listener.